Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Twilight Zone. Don't miss the new CBS All Access original series, The Twilight Zone, on April 1st with Academy Award winner Jordan Peele. This mind-bending reimagining will take you through the genres of sci-fi, horror, and fantasy to explore humanity in ways you never thought possible until now. Cross over into another dimension April 1st, only on CBS All Access. Visit cbs.com slash watchtz to redeem your free trial today. That's cbs.com slash w-a-t-c-h-t-z to redeem your free trial of CBS All Access. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. The new Microsoft Surface Pro 6 can help you get things done, whether you're on the field or running a business. Take Brian Arakpo and Michael Griffin, two former NFL teammates who have opened a cupcake shop. With the Surface Pro, they can do everything they need from setting schedules to creating promotions for social media and designing new flavors. Plus, it's light, super fast, and has a great battery life. Brian and Michael are proving you can tackle all your passions with the power and speed of the new Surface Pro 6. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's episode of The Watch. Today, Andy and I talked a little bit about the Stranger Things 3 trailer that came out this week, as well as the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood trailer. So a little trailer talk with the big uh, homie Andy Greenwald. Andy will be on Monday and we'll probably talk about Shrill on Hulu, as well as the big Apple announcement, which is coming Monday and is, is I think, actually going to be a little different than we anticipated. In the second half of the show, I was joined by showrunner Nick Antosca, who... I first heard of his work on Channel Zero, which was a show on sci-fi that I loved. And he's got a new show with Michelle Dean on Hulu called The Act. Now, this is based on Michelle Dean's piece that was in BuzzFeed a few years back. It's about Gypsy Rose and Dee Dee Blanchard, a mother-daughter living in the Ozarks. And it's essentially a story about loneliness. It's a story about uh, sickness and health. It's a story about scamming and grifting. It's a story about Munchausen by proxy syndrome. It's a fascinating true crime tale. The way that they've depicted this story on the show is kind of this eerie dream world where you can't really tell what's real and what's not. And it's also this, you know, it's also an investigative show. Uh, it's It's got a crime element to it. So it's a fascinating story. We talk about it with the knowledge of what happens in this story because obviously it's based on Michelle's piece and Michelle worked on the story as a co-creator as in the writer's room. So we do spoil it, I suppose, a little bit, but it is a hard-to-spoil show since all of this is out there already. And Nick and I talked a lot about uh, creating the world for the show and what some of the reference points were and what it was like to work on Channel Zero and the complications with putting horror on TV. So Andy about Stranger Things and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Quentin Tarantino movie, and then Nick Antosca about the act and Channel Zero. Check out the watch. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to the watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, he's the campaign manager for Godzilla 2020. It's Andy Greenwald. It's not going well. No? I gotta be honest with you. <laughs> no. What are the Gallup you know, saying? Well, it's not even that the polls. The problem is, I don't know if you've been following the campaign, but you know, you know, have you heard of this guy, Beto O'Rourke? He's he's from Texas. <laughs> I have. So the thing about him is he sort of set the bar really high because his thing is he stands on top of counters. Yes. And he stands on top of tables and he stands on top of bars. 
And let me tell you, so my, my candidate, my client saw these videos, these viral videos, and I, I can't, I'm legally not allowed to tell you details, but he tried it. Yeah. And <laughs> it didn't, it didn't, it let's didn't just say great. that Bennigan's is no longer there. The Bennigan's, <laughs> yes, exactly. The Bennigan's in, uh, Okay, you hear me trying to think of a town in Iowa or New Hampshire. And I know. This is why Centerville, flyover so. Greenwald over here yeah, has right. just just botched the punchline. Um, I'm so glad that you're joining me today, Thursday. Uh, it's a gloomy, overcast day in Los Angeles. Ooh, yeah, but, big clouds rolling in. Uh, the day has brightened up a little bit because we're here to talk with each other a little bit about uh, Stranger Things season three. The trailer came out this week, and um, you know it's been so much Thrones all the time over here that it, I forgot that 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 show is coming. I didn't forget, but I, it's, it's nice to see that that show is coming back. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that, a little bit about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because uh, it's the ninth Quentin Tarantino movie. We got a trailer for that this week. I have some Apple stuff I want to do with you, but I think I'm going to save it for okay. Monday. Um, so All right. Let's fair. just talk. Let's talk Stranger Things. I think I'm on the record as saying, like, my favorite thing about this show is how unencumbered I feel by the mythology around it in terms of demigorgons totally. and upside downs and stuff like that. I really just love the atmosphere, the world they built, the vibe of the kids, and I am kind of a sucker for the 1985 nostalgia. This is sort of ironically coming off of us being like, don't touch the 90s, Captain Marvel. <laughs> well, it's, it's different. We were active participants in that, whereas our experience of the 80s kind of is the same connect the dots toy commercial nostalgia as the Duffer Brothers, right? I mean, we it was lived experience, but yeah. we saw Ghostbusters and played with Transformers too. So it's kind of different. We we definitely weren't in the thinking about the culture phase of our lives yet, or at least I wasn't. Maybe you were. Were, were you? Were, I, was, were you? Uh, I, was, I was out there listening to the Clash's Sandinista. They called me Young Repo Man. <laughs> I was just out there did on you, the streets. <laughs> did you? Yeah, you 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 went to a, you sat outside of screenings of the Karate Kid and 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 ambushed people who criticized it, saying you know nothing of my work. Did, <laughs> you, right. did you do a full Annie Hall like Marshall uh, McLuhan I believe, style? Yeah, I was just yeah, like, I believe. <laughs> um, but it's it, a hot medium. Guys. The kind of I, I think that people were concerned trolling Stranger Things because they were like, when these kids are no longer adorable. You don't really have a show. And I think that what they're trying to do based on this trailer is lean into the inevitability of these kids hitting puberty, of these kids growing up, of these kids being too old to play like imaginative games with each other where they think they're the Ghostbusters and stuff. And they're really kind of, at least in the trailer, signaling that this will be a season where... You know, the group that we had kind of come to know and love over the first two seasons uh, are, are sort of splitting apart, which I think actually makes for really effective drama since the sci-fi elements of the show are kind of um, besides the point. Totally. I mean, first of all, I don't think it's worth being worried about whether Stranger Things can comment on the commentary. Like, that's literally the urtext of the show. Sure. So steering into a internet-driven uh, skid is is the show. That makes sense. Second... The thing that I have always, we have constantly said about this show, especially, well, since it started having multiple seasons, is that I really love, or we, I think we really love the way it's presented as a, fully as a sequel. Yeah. I think that buys it not just a lot of time in terms of people's, um, not about well, patience, certainly, because this was a long time coming this season, but they're kind of their understanding of how to process the show. Like, often sequels take a couple years and the people look a little different, and sometimes Elizabeth Shue has been replaced, or did Elizabeth Shue replace someone else? Elizabeth Shue showed up in yeah. Back to the Future, too. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. I'm rambling. <laughs> no, I But you get yeah. what I mean, that it's, it's, it's baked into the concept that that can happen. And, and the other point about it is it just 
sells it as an experience. It sells it as a vibe. It sells it as a big mood. It sells it as it's going to be another journey. It's going to be a little bit different, but we're going to explain to you right away the direction it's going in this time. And this trailer nails it. This is a summer show now. Yeah. And I kind of love that it is. And if you're going to have kids go from sweet Ghostbusters, sweetly Ghostbusting in the basement to puberty, that is the classic 80s trope to draw from. And clearly, the Duffer brothers are aware of that and are steering into it. And circling all the way back to one of the first things you said... I didn't remember the word demigorgon until you said it, and I still am not sure what to think about. Well, because they brought I, him out, he they they bring him back in the in the last second, like he's coming out to sing surrender at the end of Budokan, and it was just like, oh yeah, that fucking guy. Well, they bring him out, but he also he's had some work done. Yes. Like, the yeah. other thing about this about this trailer is that it looks like money. It looks specifically like Netflix's money, like a giant chunk of it, and. I'm not complaining. That wasn't my money. And it looks like they spent it wisely. I mean, there was a sort of DIY charm to the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even the people who loved it probably would have said that the special effects, such as they were, were inspired, but maybe not the thing that drove it. And let's go. Big budget sequel, right? Yeah. And you, you can see they're drawing from things like Stand By Me as they walk through the fields. There's a certain legend of Billie Jean kind of 80s kids in rebellion quality. The sort of premise, I guess, of the show this year is it's summer of 85. They're heading into July 4th and the kids are kind of growing apart a little bit, but there's like an evil new mayor who is played by Carrie Always, who people obviously have like oh, a strong that's attack. Who that is. Yeah, he's 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 the guy, but I think he's also channeling the mayor from Jaws as well, who's sort of. Mm. I, I think that that is even his line, like "Happy July Fourth" or whatever. I, it's just like if you play teenage, if you play Bob O'Reilly over kids <laughs> having fun, it's kind of hard not to have a serotonin boost. So. I'm really excited for this show. It's going to be a cool palate cleanser once Thrones is over. It, I I just really like this show. I don't. It's not that complicated for me. No, but I think again it goes back to the sequel thing. Like I thought Stranger Things two was not great, and I'm sure we have the tape to prove it. But I certainly enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed watching it with you and with our listeners. And and it it somehow maybe this is just me. I don't know if other people feel this, but let some of the air out. Like there's obviously pressure on this to perform due to the the budget and the importance it plays in Netflix's future amusement park plans or whatever. But it, it just feels like an event and less like, let's see how they put this thing back on the rails. You know what I mean? It's yeah, just, absolutely. It, 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 it's its own lane at this point. Let's talk a little bit about, about Tarantino. Okay. 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 So now I, it's a cause for celebration for me. The, one of the more, the, I think the, the most, some of the most interesting conversations I've had with you about pop culture over the last like five or six years have been about Quentin Tarantino movies. Really? Because I don't those. think, I think that you are coming at it in a non trolly like kind of like everything about what Quentin Tarantino does should appeal to 95% of your interests. But the 5% of you that kind of is a dissenting voice is really well articulated. Now, this film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is kind of an extension, I think, of... I, I'm looking at it a little bit as an extension of Inglorious Bastards, as his right. sort of... Uh, I don't know what you would call it, historical reenactments or historical disarmaments or something, but it's basically him going through history and maybe not correcting what's right or wrong because we don't know how he's going to treat the Manson murders and what's happening in, in summer of 69 there. But... It is obviously he finds these sort of moments in time like he did with Inglorious Bastards and 
Tarantinoizes it. Now, when you see the trailer for these movies, generally, I think that it broadcasts one thing. And then when you actually see the films, they're far more complex. They're far more, right. uh, you know, there's a lot more ambiguity. There's a lot more detail. So a lot more swears and a lot more, a lot more swears and a lot more violence. What was your first reaction to this? Because I think I had, I ran the gamut from watching it. Well, two things. I, I'm, I really have a lot of time for talking about this project of his that suddenly emerged out of these last few films out of Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, um, Hateful Eight. maybe Hateful Eight, but certainly this one as well, which is exactly as you put it, which is like an alt history, but like an alt history of America shot through a very specific pop cultural lens. I think that's really interesting. It's almost, I know he doesn't make comic book movies, but it's very comic booky to me. Yeah. It's conceit. You know, what if history was a genre film, basically? And, and and in this case, the genre is him. He's the one-man genre. As far as a trailer goes, the, the boys are back in town. It's fun. I mean, this is this is a... You're catching me at a weirdly optimistic moment, I guess. But I, enjoyed wa- I enjoy watching shiny trailers. Yeah. And Stranger Things being one of them and this being the other. Like, cinematically, it looks beautiful. And he cast beautiful stars. And Los Angeles, in any moment other than literally right now, as I look at my window, is often beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And all of that is very appealing. You know, there is a swagger, there is a cinema, there is a confidence to anything that he does that I think sometimes can be off-putting to probably, honestly, at this point, a minority of our listeners. Um, but in terms of like, here we go, like the trailer seemed to capture it well. And, you know, I'm always happy to see our man Damon Harriman show up. He's playing yeah. Benson in this. I mean, the cast uh, for this thing is outrageous and you don't even see 80% of the people who are listed uh, in the in the trailer itself. I thought that the best moment came at the end while I really enjoyed the Bruce Lee stuff. Um, it, it's just that, that, that little second at the end of the trailer where the little girl is like, that's the best acting I've ever seen and DiCaprio's character is like, great fucking note. Like, it's just, it's, that's the kind of thing that you can only get from Tarantino. There's that kind of, um, those kinds of like really indelible moments immediately that become part of the consciousness are just, they're just phenomenal. What do you think? I mean, we'll talk about this more as the film comes up, but I'm curious as a fan and I, and I was a huge, huge fan before just kind of, I guess, sort of chilling a little bit on him. What role does he play right now as a film? I mean, is, is he... Does this movie, for example, do you think this has something, I'm going to say something so, uh, this is ridiculous. This is on brand, drinking game, drink, everybody. But I was, I guess I was going to say, like, at this point, does he just have his own private sandbox, like many auteurs, and when he comes back, we get to play in it again, and then he goes back to his toys? Or do you think he, when he makes a new movie, it somehow connects to our culture, the larger culture, the filmmaking culture, um, writ large? I do, but I think you actually have to see the movie to do that. So I think Hateful Eight is a pretty profound movie in a lot of ways, but you actually have to sit through Hateful Eight to get there. And right. I think that the same goes for a lot of his films. I think that Inglorious Bastards, to me, is one of the most complicated, thought-provoking, funny, uh, harrowing movies I've ever seen. But you actually have to like deal with everything that's in Inglorious Bastards. I, he has a real... I think there's a real difference between the Tarantino that is forward-facing personality of, like, crazy movie guy with his own theater and just loves kung fu right. and and cursing and and is a little reckless with uh, with racial epithets and, and all, all this stuff. And then there is, like, when you watch his work, he is, uh, you know, he is a genius. I think he's a genius. I think he's probably one of the, like, the great filmmakers 
of my lifetime, certainly, if not the last like 50 years. And there, a, a real, the, the real engagement with his work happens once they hit theaters rather than him as like a persona or as like, a, ooh, he's like Christopher Nolan. He's just, you know, he's like a filmmaker. We get one every two or three years and they they just change the, change everything about movies and then he goes away and comes back. Like he is actually like, much more of an essayist than I give. I think we give him credit for about the human condition, about American history, about a lot of these things. So yeah, I, I actually think he's a much more relevant filmmaker than his persona leads us to believe. I think it's really interesting. I also think it's essentially a very podcast argument to, mm-hmm. be, to be like, you know, to, to say what what matters and what doesn't off of a trailer. But I also do think, and this is this is also an old guy podcast argument, but increasingly what I feel and with all the caveats with the caveats of this is how someone who doesn't see a lot of movies feels but it does feel like the it in I I, my experience with movies which is you know everyone understands admittedly limited at this point but when Tarantino comes back or Paul Thomas Anderson comes back or with a new movie or even at this point like maybe put a Barry Jenkins in there although he seems more of the moment in a lot of ways those feel like these discrete artistic experiences that I am grateful for and then we sort of go back to talking about Marvel movies and Star Wars movies. Yeah. And and this is not a profound observation to say that the movie business has changed. But I, I guess I sort of wish there was a way to still talk about this in which we're talking about this new Tarantino movie when it comes out. And then, bang, like then there's the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie or whoever else is next that is in some ways either inspired by it or commenting on it or we're going to consider it as such. And, and it feels more like a conversation as opposed to these sort of, you know, tap the mic, clears throat. Here's my essay, as you put it. Absolutely. And then step back into the, sh- and then step back into the shadows. Yeah. Maybe the only place to have that conversation like that is in the letters page of Movie Line Magazine circa 1998, <laughs> which, by the way, was highly underrated. It was. Um, do you want to talk about Shrill or should I let you go now? I, I should go, but, but we should just say, like, I think we both checked out Shrill on Hulu and I just want to say big A.D. Bryant fan. Yeah. Big, Let, big, big, big eighty. We, we can hit that on an Apple on Monday then. So don't don't even sweat it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So 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 the only commentary that we're leaving people with is that I'm a big fan of the star. This uh, is this is the trenchant analysis. Well, is, I mean, are. I would expect nothing less from Godzilla's campaign manager. You've, you're a busy man. <laughs> uh, I can't believe you're doing that and a peak TV show. We'll come back on Monday and we'll talk a little bit about the Apple announcement. And we'll talk about. Eddie Bryant. Great. I'm a political operative. You know what I mean? I want to make everyone happy. I want to make sure every baby gets kissed. Um, great, great job, baby Baranski. Thank you so much for calling in, man. Bye, buddy. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Bud Light. Did you know that not all alcohol products are required to list their ingredients? Gasp! That was news to me. Bud Light is changing the game, though. They believe that we deserve to know our beer's ingredients, so they put an ingredients label right on their packaging. Bud Light, brewed with hops, barley water, and rice. No corn syrup, no preservatives, and no artificial flavors. Find out what ingredients are in your beer. Bud Light, enjoy responsibly. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the big homies at ADT. Real protection. When it comes to something as important as your family's safety, you deserve real protection from ADT. Now, real protection means the nation's number one smart home security provider is standing by and there for you when you need them. Real protection means having a safe and smart home with everything from video doorbells, surveillance cameras, smart locks, lights, carbon monoxide, and smoke detectors in a system that's custom designed to fit your lifestyle. And setting up custom automations to do things like lock the doors and set the thermostat when you leave. 
Real protection means staying safe on the go, in the car, or when your kids are at school with the ADT Go app and the SOS button. Real protection means 18,000 employees safeguarding you. Real protection means direct connections to first responders. No matter how you define safety for you, your family, or your business, ADT is there. ADT Real Protection. Visit ADT.com slash podcast to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. All right, thanks to Andy. And now it's time for my interview with Nick Antosco, one of the co-creators of The Act on Hulu and the man behind Channel Zero on Sci-Fi. And we talk about The Act, uh, which you can watch, I think, at least two episodes of Hulu on Hulu now. And I believe it comes out every Wednesday on Hulu. So continue to check those out. We spoke about the making of the show. Nick, thank you so much for joining me, man. I find this show really fascinating. So I kind of want to start from the beginning when you're reading Michelle's piece on BuzzFeed because I'm curious whether or not it's a very, really detailed piece and the way she structured the story is in a very specific way. When you're reading it, is there a light bulb moment when you're reading re- reading that story where like that's TV or like this is a story that I'm like I'm obsessed with or, or what, not, what was the, the fish hook there? No, it was I, I because I read it as um, just a, a regular reader. You know, yeah. I, I read it as one of the I don't know like five or six million people who read the story and made it go viral. And the piece, obviously, the story just has a hook, yeah, right? Yeah. It, and it's that relationship. And you go, how how in God's name could this happen? Right. Like, and what was it like for for Gypsy Rose Blanchard to to live this experience? Because it went on for so long. It was her whole life. And what is a mother thinking mm-hmm. when she does those things to her daughter? What was a parent thinking when they do that to their child? So I think you're just left with 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 so much curiosity, a kind of dark curiosity mm-hmm. uh, about the the human beings, the real people who um, who live this experience. I never ever thought of it as a TV show until uh, you know sometime later yeah. uh, when. Uh, when I heard she was shopping it around f- to make it a TV show, uh, or, or I guess potentially a film, and Britton Rizzio, who's my manager, uh, uh, put us in touch. That's cool. And you know, to be to be clear, like I wasn't sure then. Oh, this is a, a TV show. I sort of had to think about it. Yeah. And I think what makes it uh, a series, what makes it valuable as a series, is the fact that. The real story is is about the relationship. It's not about the murder. It's not about the crime. It's yeah. about the people behind it and the mother-daughter relationship that led to that. And that took place over many years. Well, I, I was wondering about that because right now there's like this kind of like obviously feeding frenzy for any kind of intellectual property. And it's like, oh, should we turn this into a long-form podcast or should we turn this into a four-part Netflix doc or is this a limited series uh, like show? And I saw that you said on Slash Film that you – what you craved from the story wasn't something you could get from a documentary. And it had to do with like the subjective experiences of the characters. And I was wondering if we could talk about that a little bit because I would imagine that's, those are, those are the first discussions you start having with Michelle, the writers, with the directors, is like, how are we going to take the, what is already like a super compelling story? What's the added thing that you guys are doing? Well, I really, when I read the, the story, I thought about it as a coming of age story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just speaking personally, that was compelling. And movies like Boys Don't Cry mm-hmm. or Heavenly Creatures were 
really formative to uh, a lot of us who worked on the show. Um, and that is the kind of the standard that you want to aspire to, I think, when you uh, adapt a true crime mm-hmm. um, into a dramatization, which is, you know, uh, you take something which has a maybe a lurid headline or a, a kind of uh, these people are crazy, these people are bizarre uh, you won't believe what it. happens next. Yeah, yeah, and then and then you go into the humanity of the characters uh, the, the, and the, the the people, and and you do the the one thing that really is is very difficult, if not impossible, to do in a documentary, a, a, a true documentary, which is be subjective, mm-hmm. which is um, try and get into uh, the kind of their lived experience. Yeah. And uh, I think Michelle's talked about like those night, like the, what does she do at night once the mom falls asleep? Like the little, like the right. kind of like those in between moments, kind of. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think the documentary is uh, with the HBO documentary is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've probably seen it ten times, and I, I don't think of them as sort of like uh, treading the same ground artistically. So. When we were in the writer's room, you know, the question that the writers would always kind of be asking is like, what is, what does this mean for Gypsy? What is, what is her experience like here? Um, and what is driving Dee Dee? Uh, because we made a decision early on that, that while the financial fraud was clearly part of it, um, that was almost a symptom of the pathology. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this wasn't just grift it was uh it was love that became toxic yeah and that that i think is something one of the fascinating parts of the show for me is that their story seems incredibly contemporary like you know whether you're talking about it from the the katrina displacement stuff that happens or was talked about and versus and also just like the sensational amount of scamming that seems to be going on right now whether it's through the internet or or otherwise, it's a very it's a very modern story, but at the same time, that kind of uh, toxic love, like you're saying, it seems like it's timeless. Well, also, I mean, something you say like the, there's a such an interesting fascination with grift and mm-hmm. scamming and fraud um, with the uh, uh, you know the New York grifter story and the fire fraud and uh, Elizabeth Holmes and all that stuff, and, and this uh, story fits into that narrative in some ways, but. I think, you know, it has to do with um, with the culture that we live in now where social media and, and constant exposure requires all of us to put on a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it leads to a kind of constant paranoia and tension between who we truly are and who we feel like we're forced to present to the world. Um, and we didn't make this show, you know, intending to sort of comment on on that aspect of our culture. But I think it, it, uh, you know, it's a reflection of it. Um, and that's in large part what the show is about too. Is yeah. that the act? It, the act isn't the the murder. The act is the performance that Dee Dee and Gypsy are doing every day uh, together for for the world uh, and for each other. And for each other, and yeah. So you, you, in terms of the crime itself, it, I imagine that the adaptation here and the process of how you guys are going to present these things is interesting because, as you said, millions of people did read it. So there, there is like a familiarity with the endpoint to some extent of this story. I thought it was really interesting, especially over the first two episodes, is like there's like this little balance that you guys are slowly tipping of 
what we're seeing before the crime versus the aftermath and investigation of the crime and the different people's reactions to it. So how do you guys come up with that storytelling conceit where you're going to kind of like slowly do the seesaw in terms of what we're seeing before and after and and other people's sort of revelations about this right. stuff? Well, from our earliest conversations, and by, by which I mean, you know, when Michelle was shopping the article around and uh, I wanted to collaborate mm-hmm. and, and we were talking about the philosophies of it, you know, the the approach, I think, always needed to be you have to put your cards on the table like pretty early. Yeah. Because yeah. not just because everybody knows the story, because, I mean, at, at that time, the documentary hadn't come out. The BuzzFeed article had. Um, so so many people did know the story. But um, but even if they hadn't, I think to tell this story in the most kind of psychologically incisive way, you have to you have to. Uh, put the cards on the table and show what's really going on so that you have so that the audience has the tools um, to uh, to dig into the characters right to, to explore what's really going on yeah. um, and then it becomes uh, it, it becomes you know a psychological bomb under the table um, it's um, you know it's the tension between the internal and the external and 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 watching this young woman, Discover who she really is, and and uh, and and find the bars of her ca- her own cage. Yeah, I think I couldn't help weirdly to compare this to the act to Escape at Dannemora, obviously because of Patricia Arquette, but also another crime story that I think a lot of people are largely familiar with. But it's a different approach, right? Because they're doing it's every single breath and step and thought that these guys had in the lead up to. Finally getting at the very end of the show, the moment that we thought, like, I think as a casual viewer, you're like, oh, this whole thing's going to be the breakout. Mm-hmm. This whole thing is going to be them on the run because that's when I, you were watching the news every night and they're like, we can't find these fucking guys. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think um, uh, the two shows uh, complement each yeah. other. And I loved that show, by yeah. the way. Did we, you? Yeah, yeah. We, we, I saw it when we were almost done shooting um, the act. Uh, so I had seen little clips when we cast mm-hmm. Patricia, um, uh, Brett Johnson stopped by and showed us, you know, a little bit of her uh, incredible performance. Like mind-blowing. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting because they're, they're, I don't think they step on each other, but they're both shows about being trapped in a prison. Yeah. You know, yeah. They're, they're both shows about being trapped in a prison for basically the first half to, to two-thirds of, of the season and then a, a jailbreak. Yeah. Um, and then the, the tragic consequences. And— Patricia's performance kind of in both of them complements like I, I mean it could help in an incredibly interesting way. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it shows how uh how transformative and how versatile she is. Yeah. Uh, I think they're both variations on desperation in some ways. You know what I mean? They're der- variations on it. It's sort of what you'll do to combat loneliness. Loneliness. Yeah. It's it's kind of they're, they're interesting projects to look at in and I, you know there, i think there was a bit of concern but i i love the fact that they came out um kind of you know a couple months apart it's like the 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 patricia song yeah, the, the arquette that's right. that's right it's cool do you watch a lot of stuff when you're making tv not really i mean you on go purpose? You, well no not on purpose okay. I, I in fact i get a, an anxiety when we're shooting because i don't have time to watch anything really? i mean I, you know I, yeah because you're you're working you know, fifteen-hour days, eighteen-hour right. days. You you 
you get up and then you go to set and you spend all day there if you can. Um, usually you can't. You got you know, or you go into post. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you go home and and write or rewrite or you know you couldn't get a location so you have to rewrite something. So uh, when do you watch TV? Right. I mean, I I, wa- I I made time to watch Dana Moore because we had gotten the um, you know the, the award screeners or something, mm-hmm. and so I just binged it one weekend so I could like go back and and you know. Be freshly amazed at uh, high five, at Patricia. Patricia. Yeah, but uh, I get I get incredibly behind when we're shooting. The only things I watched when we were shooting the act, I think, were Dana Mora and and Russian Doll at the at the very end, yeah. which came out like I think our, our last weekend. So that would have been Savannah. like in February or whatever, like that. Yeah, yeah. We we were we were we were shooting in Savannah, Georgia. We built that whole neighborhood. You know, you, your life becomes the show. Yeah, you live and breathe. Um, Every day and night, and and then you come out of it, and it's like, oh, I'd like to read a book, you know? Yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you about the um, the onset stuff because you were walking. And forgive me if I I mispronounce the name, but Laurie de Clermont Tonier, Tonier, Lord, uh, I mean Lord de Clermont Tonier. Okay, yeah. and she actually has a film in in theaters right now, The awesome Mustang, film. which is incredible. Uh, but I was really fast. She directed the first two episodes, I believe, right? She did the first two episodes and episode six, which were just uh, the the last three haven't been screened for critics yet because we're still in post yeah. on them. But she did three of the eight episodes because she's an awesome director. And so I know that some there there was like obviously like the I think I've read you know you guys composited some characters you you put the house in a cul de sac for dramatic effect maybe rather than where it was but otherwise essentially recreated this house. Piecemeals. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Well, you just sort of gather the the uh, available information. I mean, you know, you, you can watch the documentary and the 2020 stuff, and even just from that, you can recreate the house. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and and of course, we had to recreate it over you know about seven years, um, and during that time, it evolves. Yeah, uh, it starts out as their castle and it's clean and it's new and the the colors are pastel and um and then at the at the be- beginning of the first episode you get a glimpse of what it became yeah. which is just um a bizarre sort of hoarder's prison you know there's stuffed animals everywhere and and you can see the pictures of of what it was like yeah. um, all over the place i mean they're they're available so uh we had the uh, the art department and production designer uh Recreate it as as meticulously as possible with a few kind of creative adjustments. Yeah. Um, and and the way you you know I don't want to get too technical, but um, feel free. We, we built the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, the uh, the neighbors' houses as well, um, including just Mel- the facades, or did you actually do like interiors for the neighbors' house too? We did the interiors for the oh, one we crap. go into. You yeah, know, wow, the, the, yeah. Which is uh, Chloe Sevigny and Anna Sophia Rob's house. Yeah. So for that, we built the interior. The others are, you know, simpler. Yeah. Um, but then we we also built the interior of the Blanchard's house on stage, but 20-30% bigger so that you can move walls, you can yeah. you can, you know, move the camera around. So the bathroom, for example, that they go into, you know, where she does her makeup, if you actually stepped into it in person, it's huge. Right. But uh, it doesn't feel that way on screen because we shot anamorphic uh, and everything's wide. So we, we we had to build the house in several different ways and then kind of show its its evolution. Yeah. Now you were saying that you don't have time to watch stuff while you're making the show. Did you and the creative team 
what were some of the things maybe that were like reference points or touchstones going into it? Because I think one of the, my favorite things, and I, we can chat briefly about this, Channel Zero, I think is like a complete miracle show. And I was always just blown away by uh, the visual coherence to the seasons while also each season feeling completely different. Yeah, and, and a lot of credit to that goes to, there was, you know, it's one director per season yeah. over the seasons. And and um, Stephen Pyatt, who did No End House, was the producing yeah. director yeah, on yeah. the act. And he did uh, two episodes as well. So w- are you guys operating, I mean, when you have something that's like, you've, had, you've got a lot of like physical documentary evidence for what something is supposed to look like in reality, but like you're changing reality a little bit. You have like a collective viewpoint on reality, a subjective one. Were you guys watching anything? Was there stuff that you were drawing from that people might find surprising or interesting? Um, yeah. I mean, well, we watched a lot of Disney movies. Oh. Um, we watched, uh, we watched Badlands. Yeah. Um, we watched Grey Gardens. Uh, and, and when I say we, I mean, you know, it's often me and Michelle. Um, we, we put it on kind of a syllabus for the writers. Um, Boys Don't Cry, of Mm -hmm. course, which, which I really think visually has a, um, a beautiful style where it feels kind of poetic and a little bit kind of heightened and simplified as if it's a fairy tale mm-hmm. and somehow that like enhances or, or emphasizes the humanity of it ironically yeah. and so for the act in the first episode we heightened it a little right so because it it it's just like a you know it's a little house um, but to them it's a castle yeah. and it's it's candy colored and the light is lovely and and it almost has like a Edward Scissorhands um, yeah like Tim neighborhood kind of vibe. vibe yeah not to that extreme at mm-hmm. all but but like the world looks like candy and um and it's it's the fantasy that Dee Dee is creating for Gypsy yeah and then that evolves the visual style the production design uh, evolves over the eight episodes it kind of almost as like the story itself kind of corrodes a little bit right yeah, yeah. and and laura i mean she's also a you know a, a co-executive producer on the show um so you know she had a huge part in even though she like she did the first two episodes and then six um she was a big part of envisioning what the kind of aesthetic arc of the entire thing would be. So yeah. she, Michelle, I, Stephen Pyatt all talked about that stuff um, early on. And, and and Zach Galler, the DP, who shot every single episode and is a huge part of the creative vision, yeah. talked about, you know, what that progression is going to feel like. So cinematically, the, the show changes over the course of yeah. the eight episodes pretty substantially. Um well, you'll see. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's cool. I can't wait to check it, check that back end out. I want to ask you a little bit about Channel Zero, if that's okay. Sure. So I would. I was a pretty big evangelist about this show, and Thank I would you. go to people and I'd say, "This is weird. There's there's a show on Sci-Fi. I think it might be one of the best things on TV." And I either would win, or they would be like, "That's just way too fucked up for me to watch." And right. but it was very specific reaction. It was way too fucked up for them to watch, like as TV. And I was wondering if you feel free to talk about this or not. Um, is there a problem with horror on TV? Is there something still like baked into our like, I'm at home. I just got back from work. I, you know, maybe I want to watch like a crime show, but like, this is just too much. Whereas like, cause horror at the box office is like, you kind of like, they are printing money to some extent. Yeah. I mean, I just think TV horror is a little bit of a different kind of a thing. You know, it, it you cannot do 
insidious as a TV show in the same way that it works as a movie because that kind of horror, and and I I love insidious, by the way. Yeah. you know, it, it's it's the jolts. It's like the daggers of adrenaline. And if you just do that every episode of TV for six, eight, 10, 12 episodes, whatever, like it wears off. Yeah. You just can't quite do it. Um, so it has to be something like more, I don't know, for, for lack of a better word, like existential. It's it dread. has to be yeah. a, a dread. And sometimes there's, there's those visceral scares. But um, I love the opportunity to do horror on TV. I mean, with Channel Zero, we tried to have a sort of, Sustained dread with with a few kind of actual like yeah. oh my god scares, um, but you know outside of what's on screen that was just uh, an extraordinary experience. We got to make essentially four um, indie horror movies yeah. in like two years. With uh, I, I literally I just came over here from um, I was having lunch with Don Mancini who you know did Chucky with and yeah. who was, worked on Channel Zero and Brandon Scott who was in season three and season four of, of Channel Zero. Right. And uh, we were just talking about how, you know, it was such a great experience and a family. And, and you know, that's what you want. Like, yeah. that the the production and writing to feel like, where it's like, getting away with something. And, sure. and there's a, you know, a cool creative, like, mind meld. Yeah, it's weird. It's almost like if you tried to, pitch no end house as a movie like you could but it it's like it takes a little longer to explain yeah. than the way a normal horror movie is like these guys go into the woods and something really screwed up happens like the way like you would do like right. the ritual or something like that but like with no end house it was like oh man i mean like there's this but then there's also this <laughs> and then like four episodes in this happens and it, it well it, i mean that's the to your question earlier that's one of the really nice things about yes. horror on tv you seem to be able at least right now to get away with things that are a little weirder or a little more cerebral than you could ever get made as a feature, yeah. at least with any kind of a budget. Not that we had a big budget on Channel Zero, but right. yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's cool. But but I I also hope, and I don't know if this is going to happen, but I hope that some creepy pastas will be able to uh, become films. Yeah, now, the, the the path will be just like a little bit easier. I know they're doing Spire in the Woods, okay, um, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, I've heard about, you know, a couple others that are maybe in the works. And I think that's really cool. That's neat. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for coming by. People should check out The Act. People should definitely go check out Channel Zero if they haven't already. Nick, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you. The Act on Hulu. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by ADT. ADT Real Protection. When it comes to something as important as your family's safety, you deserve real protection from ADT. Real Protection means the nation's number one smart home security provider is there for you when you need them. Real Protection means 18,000 employees safeguarding you. No matter how you define safety, ADT is there. ADT Real Protection. Visit ADT.com slash podcast to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you.